Good morning, church. All right, like Ryan said, my name's Jesse. Uh, my wife and I have been here the past year and a half. Is that, is that too loud for you guys? Great. Um, year and a half here in Colorado, and we have loved it. We've been, uh, we joined RP at that point, and it's been so awesome to be a part of this community and be in a gospel community here. So it's been really great, and I'm particularly honored to be able to share a bit about the book of James and help continue us along the um, a series we've been in in James the Gospel on the Ground. And so this week's text, I think, is a particularly boots-on-the-ground kind of text, and it really served to challenge me personally and also encourage me. So if I just have one goal this morning, it's to share that challenge, share that encouragement with you all, and so hopefully it can be as meaningful to your lives as it has been for me. So um, yeah, we'll jump right into it. I'm just going to pray one more time for our time in the Word. So would you join me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time you've given us to be able to just uh, worship you and to dive into your text and to see what the book of James has to say for our lives. Lord, I pray for humility and that we and, and I especially would be able to let go of any kind of stubbornness and not wanting to do what your word says, even when it's so challenging, Lord. Lord, I pray that, as James says earlier in his book, that we would be doers of the words and not just hearers. That as we would uh, read this, uh, read your word, read what it has to say for us in James, that uh, we would leave here changed and we would, um, yeah, just become more like you. So we pray this all in your name and to your glory. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, like I said, my wife and I moved here about a year and a half ago from Florida uh, in Gainesville, where I was finishing up college, and then moved here. And there's been a number of differences that we've seen between there that are pretty obvious, like culture and food, but particularly temperature, climate, not very used to that, what we're seeing here. This is actually pretty nice for us, actually. So all these new things that we're seeing, but I tend to find comfort in the similarities, the things that I find that are nearly the same, even if they're oddly specific. And so one very specific uh, similarity I've seen between these two places is something that you all will have to back me up on. And I started to first notice it in college, and I think I'd be willing to bet that everyone here has done this before, or at the very least, had it done to them. So I'm talking about the phenomenon of watch my stuff. Okay, so picture this for a second. You're a college student and you're at a library. Or more recently, you're someone who works from home and you decide to work one day in the coffee shop and you've got your laptop and your books, or if you're a student, your hundreds of dollars worth of textbooks lined up and your drink and half-eaten lunch, and it's all there sprawled out before you and you have to leave for a second to take a phone call, use the restroom, whatever, but it's too cumbersome to take your stuff. So you think it's a great idea to ask the complete stranger sitting next to you, excuse me, um, my stuff right here is really expensive. I'm about to leave. And based on our mutual trust that we've established over this time in the coffee shop, would you protect my things? And um, they usually agree. So who, maybe in fewer words, has done this before? Okay, we've got more people. That's good. We've got some people that are deniers. Even... Honestly, I've done this way too many times. I've done it here too in Monk and Mongoose all the time. Um, and, but even if you haven't done this before, it's at least been done to you by a mom at a coffee shop or a suspect person at an airport. Like, this is something that happens quite regularly. And if you're like me and you're a control freak, you've probably wondered, 
is this a secure, is this an effective method at securing my things? Like, does this actually work? Well, great news. Wonder no further. I've done a test, an experiment that verified whether this works. It was one time in college, my roommate and I were sitting at a dorm library, same setup. We had to walk out. So we asked this girl that's sitting across from us on the table. We didn't know her. We just knew she lived on our dorm floor. Would you watch our stuff? She said, sure, whatever. It goes back to doing her thing. We leave and we have this conversation together that asks the same question and it's ruminating in our minds like, does this actually work? And um, so as we leave the library, we see another one of our dorm mates coming in. You might see where this is going. We see him coming in and we say, hey, man, would you mind for a second just walking in there and steal our stuff? And um, I wasn't sure what he was going to say. He actually asked no follow-up questions and just did it, which is really crazy. So he walks into the library, and me and my roommate are watching through this window in the library, dorm library. He does, like, one of these numbers, goes up to our desk, and just kind of, like, scoops it in and shuffles out. And we watch this girl do, like, a quadruple take, like... Am I actually responsible for this? Like, what did I sign up for? And I'm wondering exactly what she's going to do. Like, is she... Is she going to just go on about her day? Is she going to call the police? Like, what, what's she going to do? But to our surprise, she actually storms out of the library, following our friend, and we see her coming up, like, red as a tomato, and kind of comes up and stammers at him, like, uh, are, are you, sh- is, is, is that yours? Are... And we didn't expect her to do this, so we weren't exactly hiding. And um, she sees us and immediately figures out what's going on. So the results of our experiment was not making any friends. She actually said something that was very mean that day that I'll leave at college and not bring to church. But um, that was one thing we learned. She actively avoided us in our dorm floor from then on. But we also learned the answer to our question that yes... Yes, it works. It may be a non-reproducible experiment, but it still works. And um, that was really helpful for me as a college student going forward. I'd be able to do that. Um, And I hadn't really thought of that again till recently when I was picking up this text. I noticed that that behavior is actually part of a greater human behavior that's a little bit more complex than that. It's that we as humans... We always want to be in control, but we occasionally find ourselves to be out of control. So rather than being okay with that, we concoct something in our brain. We create a sort of mental illusion that we can somehow still remain in control. Even though I'm out of control, that my stuff is over here and I'll have to leave, we come up with this completely irrational idea that some stranger will watch my things for me and I can still somehow, in my head, remain in control. And I think that as we read this text this morning, that James makes a nearly identical observation, just like an ancient Eastern version of that, and um, is, was willing to say that this is not something unique to our generation or our locale, but this was true for his generation too. And so as we jump into this text, you can decide for yourself if he says something like that. But cards on the table before we go in. I think James has one thing to say in these four little verses he has to say. He says that an attitude of total control... That is an an attitude that insists that I am stubbornly always in control is inconsistent and incompatible with a life of total submission to Jesus. So an attitude of total control is incompatible with a life of total submission to Jesus. And I think what makes this text particularly meaningful is that James doesn't just provide like a do this or a pray this way kind of thing. He actually invites us into a new perspective 
how to see planning, how to see control, how to see what it looks like to, to, to revere the plans of God. He invites us to a new perspective here that helps us to reconcile this seemingly human paradox that we have that we always need to be in control, yet many times realize that we're out of it. So as Christians, I think this helps us um, with the idea and the question of what is a healthy balance between being very like planning and controlling everything and making sure everything goes as I plan versus just being a, a let go kind of person, blindly trust Jesus. Like obviously I know there's somewhere in the middle where that honors the Lord and that's true, but, but where exactly is that? And maybe if you're either not religious <clears throat> or you aren't too keen on the idea of God controlling everything, we can at least still agree that there are sometimes parameters in play that are out of our control to affect. And so the question becomes like, how do we respond to those situations? So if you're a young adult or a student or a young professional here, um, a lot of questions come up of like, how do I plan out my career and how do I still take control of that or my dating life and marriage life while also honoring Jesus in it and trusting him for that? Or maybe if you're a young parent in this church, which we have no shortage of, um, you probably wonder like, how do I still take control in a sense of making sure my child is raised right and raised honorably, yet still trusting the Lord with how he or she is raised. Or honestly, if you're just anyone here at this church and you see um, the, the crazy things going on with markets and pandemics and, and world events, gas prices, whatever it might be, you probably wonder, how do I still plan in this kind of season? How do I still, in a sense, control, yet still honor the Lord through this? And so I think through these couple of verses that James really has something to say meaningful for all those scenarios and what it looks like to approach that. So if you would turn, would turn with me to James 4, um, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So we've been digging into this book of James and, and Ryan and Scott and Rick have done a great job at setting up historical context and also preaching through the chapters that have led us up to here and will continue us forward. But I think this text is really important to understand the context that we're, that we're talking about here. So if you're like me and you've been traveling a lot and you need a quick refresher, here it is. James is addressing a audi- an audience that's primarily Jews and Christians during the time of the Jewish diaspora, which is pretty much for different reasons. People of Jewish descent had to be spread out all throughout Palestine and even farther than that for two reasons. Um, The Roman occupation before Jesus and even a little bit after sent people all over. And so they've been relocated for quite a while. And then also due to um, the new Christian movement and some martyrs that had happened, some were spread out and more recently had to find new homes. So James is addressing this audience that's on the cusp of this new Christian movement and trying to reconcile an eclectic group of people. A lot of them have this in common of not being at home, but some are a little bit more comfortable because they've been in it for a while, while others are a little bit more in shock still. So you've got that, and there's also the difference of economic um, situations within those Christians. You've got these people in particular who are a little bit more poor and still trying to figure out how to provide, whereas you've got others that are a little bit 
more comfortable and a little bit more wealthy. And some scholars of the Jewish diaspora would describe this diverse situation like this of the Jewish people. They would say, a hardworking people earning its living by tenacious labor. There were many who prospered and no branch of economic life was close to them. Specifically, Jews of the diaspora were soldiers, landowning farmers, agricultural laborers, shepherds, artisan, manual workers, slaves. But there were also some very wealthy Jews, such as traders, merchants, bankers, government officials. Thus, diaspora Jews were found in almost all socioeconomic strata of that period. There's a diversity of who he's addressing. And we see this when he talks about in... um, in James 1, where he talks about let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humili- humiliation. There's a, there's a difference there. Or in James 2, with partiality, don't show partiality to those who are in this higher economic strata or more important. We should be treating everyone with love and, and equal um, affection and not pushing anyone down. So we see this difference that he's creating in this audience. But for the first time in James, and what might be the only time, he starts to zero in on the wealthy subsection of Christians. So before, he would refer to all and refer to some of the poor Christians, and later we'll see him refer to the wealthy ones who are non-believers. But in this section, he starts to zero in on the wealthy Christians. And I can't help but think that he's almost putting the crosshairs on me at this point, because it's so similar to how we are and how I am here in the greater Denver area where, and, and in Douglas County where we're, we're such a transient city, where Douglas County is such, a, such an affluent county compared to the rest of the country. And a lot of people move here seeing like, hey, I'm going to come here to make a profit and I'm going to live here for a little while, but then I'll move on to the next step of my plan. Like that's kind of the, the approach that we've got here. So I almost feel targeted when James talks about this, that um, me living here, I'm kind of like that. And James goes toe to toe with this attitude. So as you see in uh, verse 14, when he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He starts off by saying, look, you have a finite amount of knowledge of what will happen in the future. And to us here, everyone in this room, us in 2022, that comes to no shock. If any people in the world, that should be the least shock to us because of how every day is a surprise now. And if you're not convinced, if you keep a journal, go back to like January, February, March of 2020, or your text message log, and see any plans you made for that summer, and have a laugh. Because like everything that we do, like lately, it just seems like nothing is a surprise. So this is, this is not teaching us anything new here, but he goes on a little farther and says, not just your knowledge that's finite, but also your lifetime. When he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so he's saying, your, your knowledge is finite, your life is finite, and the, to make it even worse, when your lifetime will actually come to a close is also a mystery to you. So all these ways that you are so out of control, you're just like this mist that, you know, you take a quick shower and it's gone like that, or you, you know, put on the defroster on a cold morning in your car and it's gone like that. Like, that's what he's describing our lives to be right now. And this is not a new idea. Um, maybe if you've been studying the Bible for a while, you might have recognized that, that word or that idea because it's talked about in Ecclesiastes 2, and I think we have it up there. It says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity or, or like a vapor, a fleeting breath and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
So this was a theme already in the New Testament. And I wonder also if James was taking a a page out of the book of his brother Jesus when um, in Luke 12, he tells a parable about a rich man. It should also be up there. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the very things you have prepared, whose will they be? So I want you to see that this is not something new that he's teaching us here. This is prevalent throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. And even if you haven't been studying the Bible for a while, this is a pretty concrete thing that we all understand. We are not in control. We have a finite amount of life. And so he's setting that up and saying, okay, if you understand that, then let's see, let's take a look at how you are approaching control. Like, why are you acting like the puppet master of your life if you understand this on a mental level? Um, some of you might be familiar with uh, Carl Sagan. If you might, he's a, he's a scientist that lived in the 80s. He was also a TV show writer. He wrote a show that was the most watched um, American television show on public broadcast. And even to this day, it is more popular, or sorry, it's the most popular PBS show to ever have aired, even more than Dragon Tales, believe it or not. Um, It's called Cosmos. And in one of those stories, in one of the episodes called Journeys in Space and Time, he says one of these quotes. And I want you to focus in on the idea he's getting at here. We might, I mean, we might obviously disagree with some of the aspects of God and creation here, but focus in on the idea that he's getting at. He says, they developed culture invented tools, domestic fire, domesticated fire. He's talking about the um, acceleration of humans. They discovered languages and writing and developed agriculture, built cities and forged metals, and ultimately they set out for the stars from which they had come years earlier. We are star stuff, which has taken its destiny into its own hands. Now, you know, I love the TV show, and obviously I go toe-to-toe, and I disagree with a lot of stuff that Carl Sagan will say because we have different ideas of God, obviously, but I want to zero in exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, look, I am the process of these stars deforming and eventually becoming earth and becoming me. And now that I am me, I can take control of my own destiny and push it forward. And I want us to see that he falls into the same exact trap that the people James is writing to fall into. That they understand, hey, I'm a result of things that were out of my control, yet now that I feel like I'm in control, I can be the captain of my own fate. And I want us to see that even though we, as Christians, having a higher view of God, having a higher view of God's plan, we fall into the same exact trap. We know that we are a result of God's plan going forward. We had no choice into being born where we were, yet somehow we still believe mentally that we can be in control and we can be the captains of our own destiny. And it's completely nonsensical. So yeah, he's just laying this foundation for a reminder that's sobering, that we are not in control. So he says, what do you do about this? Go to uh, verse 15 with me. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Um, whenever I fly home and visit my family and I go see my grandparents, um, you know, things start to wind down eventually after a conversation and I start to talk about when I'll go visit next time. Hey, I'll be here next Thanksgiving, next Christmas, whatever it might be. 
And um, without fail, whenever I say this to my grandmother in particular, she always cuts me off and says, si Dios quiere, or if the Lord wills. She, she always says that. And I'm like, yes, abuela, of course. Like, uh, you know, it's all assumed if the Lord wills, it's, that's a given. She's, and she stops me there again. No, 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 nothing is given. It's all in the Lord's plan. And I feel bad at that point. Like, you're right. I didn't mean to get spiritual at this point. Like, you know, I was just saying this. And growing up, I always thought that that was just like a compulsory kind of pious addendum that people add to the end of their plans just to, just to say it. But me, I'm a, I'm a Protestant Christian. I don't need to say holy words. But um, I do, while I do think that James is getting at something that's a little bit more complex and greater than just saying words, hear me out for a moment. When James teaches about these people who talk about their plans, how they say, hey, we're going to go into such and such a city and make this profit. They talk about their plans, but then they actually become reality. He's saying, now, when you talk about your plans, you should bake in if the Lord wills and let that become part of your reality. So it's not just saying a couple magic words. It's something that's built into what you say, built into what you plan, and that tends to become what um, actual reality is. And, you know, I start to wonder, like, okay, if I don't necessarily always think if the Lord wills whenever I make plans, like, when should I? Am I in the wrong here? At what point of decisions should I make that? And I think that's what verse 16 is telling us about, and we'll read it again. Um, It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Or another helpful way that the NIV translates it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And although we don't use the word boast very much, in this context, it's kind of describing putting your, your confidence in or putting your trust in. So he's saying, you, you, you boast, you put your confidence in your arrogant schemes. It's not necessarily that you need to say a particular combination of words to please the Lord. It's when you put your confidence in the schemes and the plans that you are making rather than the, the God's plan and acknowledging his will, that's when we're in the wrong. It's not some kind of magical incantation. It's rather putting your trust and your confidence in God's plans rather than in your own. And I think it's worth it to pause right here and talk about what he's not referring to or what he's not including in this passage because it can be very confusing. What he's not talking about is the let go and let God or the Jesus take the wheel. This is very different what he's talking about. Jesus takes the wheel, assumes I'm at the wheel, I'm in control, but I need to let go and let God have the control of my life. I need to just submit to him in that sense. But what James is saying here is you got to quit being a backseat driver. He's saying that you were never in control. The Lord has been in control this whole time, but you're acting like you're the one in the wheel. So you need to change the attitude that you have, acknowledging that the Lord is the one in control here, and it's not you. There's a there's a big difference to be made there. And also, he's not saying don't make plans. Like the scripture is full of proverbs and, and parables of Jesus that talk about making good decisions and making good plans. Or if you're an international business person and you do the kinds of things that he was talking about here, he's not saying that that itself is wrong. It's the attitude behind it. As one of the commentators of this passage would say, his name is Doug Moo, it says, it is not their occupation 
but their attitude that has become secular. So there's not a problem with traveling to these places and making those plans and making those profits. That's not the, the idea. That's not what he's barking at here. He's saying it's the, it's the attitude that you have behind that. It's the confidence that you put in that that is the problem. That's what's come to disgrace the Lord. That's what's become secular. So again, he lays that foundation of saying, you're not in control. You're not even in the know. God is in control. And so you should start acting like it. And then James puts another verse in this passage. And it fits kind of oddly. I'll read it and we can talk about it. It says in verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, there's a lot of commentators, Bible scholars, people way more educated and smarter than me that would argue about these things all day and still are. So I can't give you any affirmative reason why and, and what exactly James is referring to when, I, when he puts it here. But some suggestions that they would say is that even though this verse kind of fits oddly here, James is wrapping up the bigger section of what we talked about um, earlier these weeks as we worked through James. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with exactly what we're talking about. But the disagreement that I have with that is that this verse starts with that, so whoever knows, or a lot of translations would say, therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do. And it's really trying to connect this verse to what we just talked about. So I I don't think it's worth it to say it has nothing to do with what we just talked about. And so some might say, okay, well, earlier in James 4, as Rick preached last week, if you were here, um, in Proverbs 3, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He kind of quoted that. So maybe James still had Proverbs 3 in his mind. And in Proverbs 3, it says, do not withhold good from whom it is due, which is pretty similar to that verse 17. So, okay, maybe that makes sense because James's audience here is both Christian or poor Christians and wealthy Christians, and they should be um, treating each other well, and, and the, the wealthy should be giving to the poor and not withholding anything. So I think that makes sense, and, and it, it, there is a truth to it in the greater picture of James. But if you ask my opinion, I think the most convincing argument and, the, and James's main reason for including this verse right where he puts it is because it it means exactly what it means. If you know the right thing to do it and you don't do it for you, it is sin. That's the difference here. So like we were talking about, we all know that we're not in control. We all know that instead God is in control. We are out of control. That's something we know. Yet if we fail to have an attitude that acknowledges that and we still live in such a way that doesn't acknowledge that, that's when it's sin. So the difference here is just making a wrong choice versus direct insubordinate disobedience. That's, that's the kind of point he's trying to wrap this up around here. And if you rewind your brains like I can back to uh, James 1.8 when James talks about a double minded man. And when Richt spoke about that passage, he talked about how it translated more literally into someone who is double-souled, or someone who has split their soul into two parts to serve two different masters. And I think James is actually talking, uh, making a very similar argument here, a similar warning. He's saying, look, you have this soul, this master of your own desires, and you being in control, yet you also acknowledge yourself to be a Christian, and you acknowledge that the Lord is in control. But these two things are 
completely incompatible. And he's saying, if you're acting like this, then you are a double-souled, double-minded person. So he's kind of hearkening back to that idea. So for the last time, he lays that foundation. We're not in control. Not a surprise. Second, God is in control, so we should act like it. And third, if we know these things and fail to do them, that's when we're in trouble. That's the whole difference here. So as we talk about this and as we approach James and, and try, to, try to see what these four verses that seem to kind of fit and seem to be kind of distant but somewhat applicable and we try to figure that out and piece it together, how does this work for me? Like, you know, we're here, us here and, and Parker, like what, what does this mean for us and what, um, how can we actually apply this when this is not a step-by-step plan, this is rather a heart attitude that he invites us to. So, so knowing that that is what it is and he's inviting us to more of a posture of a posture toward our plans, a posture toward God, a, a posture toward his plans. If that's it, then how do we actually implement that into our lives? And while I wish I could say, just change your attitude, just, just change it. It's easy. You know, just, you'll be dandy after that. Like that's not how it works. And if that were the case, I'd have it down. And as it is, I do not far from it. So it is so hard to, to rewire our brains into this new mental paradigm of acknowledging the Lord is in control, yet still realizing, Hey, we still have a say in certain things and finding a balance there. There is still, that's such a, a whole new way to wire our brain to do that. And on a personal note, that is so difficult for me, especially if uh, a lot of you here might be in a, in a career field or something like that, where you're surrounded by really ambitious people who are always talking about their careers and always breathing down your neck. Hey, you've got to have your career planned out, or you've got to have, you know, your step-by-step plan, and you are the captain of your own career. That's literally something I hear every day. Like, you are the captain of your own career. You should make it done. You should make it known. And that is such a struggle when we know as Christians— yeah, in a sense, sure, that's true, but we also are subservient to God's plan. And so that's such a difficult paradox that we try to reconcile as Christians. So if you struggle with that, I'm with you. Like, I feel you here because that is something that's so difficult for me too. And I wish I could tell you, hey, in your life, this is what that looks like. And I can't, I I can barely even say it for mine. So I think maybe the most helpful thing that I can do is introduce an example of someone who I think did this really well. On April 10th, 1912, a historic vessel set sail from England to New York. It was captained by Edward John Smith. It was one of the most fantastic feats of nautical engineering. You know it already. It's the Titanic. And the builders and the people who wrote it off were even okay with leaving off the 64 lifeboats extra needed to fit everyone on that. They were so dazzled by how great it was because the thought of this ship sinking was laughable. And it's even rumored to have been quoted that the captain said, not even God could sink the ship. They had charted a course for such and such a place. They were going to make a profit and no one could stand in their way except, as we all know, an iceberg in the Atlantic. But there's another person, another transatlantic sailor around this time that approached it differently. He was a wealthy Christian businessman. 
His name was Horatio Spafford, pretty similar to um, the people that James was talking about here. He lived in Chicago with his wife and his five kids, and they were traveling to Europe, and his, his four daughters and his wife got on the boat. He had to stay behind because he had a few things to finish up. He was going to meet up with them there. And on their way, the boat collided with another boat in the Atlantic, and it sunk. And his four daughters were lost, but miraculously, his wife, Anna, survived. And so Horatio heard about this and boarded his first boat to go to England to meet and, and, and to, to mourn the loss of their daughters with his wife. And as they're passing over the spot, as they're passing over the Atlantic, the, the, the captain calls him up to his cabin and says, this is the same spot in the ocean that your daughter's ship was lost. And I myself, I, I wish that I could have been there, just been a fly on the wall to see how Horatio took that, how, how he understand that. And like, what was going on in his brain when he heard that we're going over the same spot and that ship is somewhere miles below me. I really would love to hear what he thought when he realized, look, I had this plan and it was going to be great. It was awesome. But then the Lord had this other plan that was so much more tragic than mine. But somehow, for some reason, it's the Lord's plan that came to be truth and not mine. And I really, really wonder what was going on in his brain when that happened and, and when he thought that and, and, and when he experienced that. And, and fortunately for us, we have preserved in history a hymn that he wrote shortly after passing that spot in the ocean. It goes like this. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. Now, again, while I might not be able to tell you what that attitude looks like in your life or maybe even mine, I'm glad that I can share a little bit of at least what it looked like in the life of this man. I, I wonder what it would look like to, to, to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so, I wonder with us here as Christians, with the people of RP here, like what would it look like if we had that attitude? If that no matter the adversity, no matter we of whatever plan that we had, but the Lord had a different plan and no matter how seemingly better our plan was compared to the tragic plan of the Lord, we're ready and able to say yes, if the Lord wills it is well. Imagine how different our church or each of our individual lives would be if we had that kind of attitude. How different our community and Parker itself would be if we approached um, this uh, planning and we approached God's control with this kind of attitude. And so there's one more story and the greatest story about this. And I think it's the actual inspiration that made James write this as he did. It's um, when Jesus, on the night he was going to be betrayed and later crucified, he was sitting in the garden and praying and asking his father, Lord, would you take this cup of suffering away from me? Would you allow the suffering to be pushed away? Would you somehow make a way that I don't have to go through this? 
But in the end, he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And it might be speculative, but I can just imagine that maybe in Jesus' brain, he could have concocted a plan of how he could call a legion of angels down and not be betrayed by his friends and avoid his own execution, avoid that separation from God. I'm sure he had some plan to be able to accomplish the same thing, but rather than making his own plan or creating this some kind of illusion in his mind, he said, Lord, not my will but yours be done. And as we know, um, as it says in Philippians 2, it'll be up there, it says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in a, in a minute, Ryan will come up and, and walk us through the communion. But I, I want to say that as we take the elements, as we take this cup, it's a result of this sacrifice that we're talking about, of Jesus allowing us to be co-heirs with him and in the family of God because he didn't decide to make his own plan and take control himself. He decided to give control and acknowledge that the Lord is in control. And so I, I, I just want to say that as we take this cup, we are saying the same thing as Christians. We're saying that, that Lord, I am giving up any schemes of arrogance, any kind of attitude that I have toward my own planning that puts my confidence in my own sold master, I'm instead giving it up and putting my attitude, putting my confidence in you. So, and, and even if you're, 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 you're not a Christian here and you're not um, yet a part of the, the Christian family or not taking the cup, I would say take Jesus himself because he enabled us through these decisions, through the sacrifice, to become a part of his family, no longer doomed to be stuck in our own arrogant schemes, but to be made new under his amazing plan. So, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made that now we can be here and see and see the other side and see what it's like to be in your family and to be um, and to know you, Lord. Thank you that you did better than we ever can by saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I pray that we as your followers would be able to go forward in this week and go forward for the rest of the summer and on from there with that new attitude of putting our confidence in your plans and not in our own. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.